On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we have a very special guest, Michael Bamberger, uh, one of the most gifted writers of the game of golf uh, today. Uh, Michael is someone who, um, after starting um, at uh, in the newspaper world, uh, went to Sports Illustrated for 20-plus years and more recently has gone to the Fire Pit Collective and has written seven books, and um, they're just stellar. Um, and so are his pieces, both at Sports Illustrated and on Golf.com, and now more recently, the Fire Pit Collective. And we talk about his journey in golf uh, and how he got started growing up um, in Long Island uh, his um, experiences as a caddy for a brief time um, in Europe, um, his career at Sports Illustrated, uh, which was, as I say, more than 20 years. Um, we talk about his two most recent books, The Second Life of Tiger Woods and more recently The Ball in the Air, which are both fantastic. And um, his thoughts generally on where the game stands today with live in the PGA Tour. Um, this was really a treat for me. I've um, been a longtime fan of his, love his writing, love his work, and it was just uh, a lot of fun to get a chance to talk with him. So up next on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, Michael Bamberger. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and it is my Great good fortune and honor to have with us the great Michael Bamberger, who um, I'm sure most of our listeners are, know, uh, written seven books, including The Ball in the Air most recently, which we'll get to, um, wrote a play. I even saw that, Barton Fay. I didn't realize that. And of course, um, uh, very won the Memorialism, Memorial Golf Journalism Award at Jack's Tournament um, last year, and uh, just a tremendously a uh, skillful writer and uh, in our game. Michael, thank you so much for taking a few minutes of uh, time and joining us today. Larry, I'm delighted to do so. We're uh, visiting Cambridge, Mass. We're in, a, we're in a borrowed house. We've got a pooch here, an ancient old pooch. Who's, I hope she's not disturbing your broadcast too much. Perfect. Uh, the house that we're in, we've been told, and I'm sure it's true, Bonnie Raitt lived in when she was an undergraduate. Really? at Radcliffe College, so it's neat to think that she probably strummed her guitar in this kitchen where I'm sitting right now. That's very, very cool. Um, so you and I are the right age to appreciate the yes. very name. But I, although it's been so long that even our kids know well the name. Absolutely, absolutely, Michael. So um, maybe just to kind of give folks a little context and kind of go back to the beginning, uh, I know you grew up in the South Shore, Long Island, Suffolk County. Um, maybe just tell folks kind of how you first got involved in this fantastic game of golf. All right, Larry, I, uh, this is really the necessary starting point for my so-called life in golf. My parents fled Nazi Germany as kids. Wow. When they got on those boats independently, they were, they were both kids. I don't think it was, any, first off, there could not have possibly been any knowledge whatsoever that golf existed. Golf in Germany in those days, if it existed at all, would have been far beyond their scope. So the fact that they somehow raised a son who became a golf bum slash writer seems beyond unlikely. 
but is a weird note to the greatness of this country and yep. game that happened. But very briefly, I'm only going to mention this because I wish more schools had it. I had an eighth grade gym teacher who was a golf buff who took it upon himself to introduce it uh, as an elective uh, to our class. And wow. And Larry, now I, I, I think you, you, I know you started much younger than I, um, but there is a certain percentage of the world that has some kind of DNA. What do they call those things? Markers. DNA markers, markers, right. Yeah. You get bit by the golf bug. And, yeah. uh, but you can't know unless you put the club in the person's hands at any age, but especially if the person's young. But I would say of the 14 or so kids, two or three of us did get bit by the golf bug. And, uh, Anyway, that's how that's how it started for me with in an eighth grade public gym class. The reason I mention that is because there's so much effort with the first tee and the USGA initiatives for this, that, and the other thing. It's great. Anybody can get a kid to golf is great. Top golf, driving ranges, mini right. golf, all right. great. But public schools could offer golf much more than they do. I don't know anything about the numbers for that sort of thing, but I don't think it's common. Right. Um, did you go I to a? I, I did. It's funny. It, 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 I did. I went to, grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut, went to public high school in West Hartford. And it's funny because I haven't thought about this in a million years, but hearing you talk about that, we actually did have it as an elective in gym class. Um, and you're right. I mean, I started with my dad when I was nine. So by that time, I had already taken it. But, but I also agree with you. It is rare. I don't think any of my kids, I mean, I have, you know, my kids are 32, 29, 22. So they're all past, you know, school, high school and, and junior high, what have you. I don't think any of them ever had it as an elective. So I I, I hear you exactly. It, it was um, people who weren't otherwise introduced in the game, a neat way to get them introduced. And it's a shame it's not more common. Yep. Um, so you were, did you, you played on your high school team a little bit and you were caddying at that time, yep. right? Yeah, I uh, caddied for my high school principal, and uh, we had a, a public golf course uh, five miles from our house. We're a kid, not to sound like grandpa here, but for $50 a summer or $50 a year, you could play Monday through Thursdays after 2 o'clock, which was perfect for a junior golfer. Yeah. You, could, you could sort of sneak on at other times. I could take a public bus right to the golf course. And there were in Suffolk County on, on Long Island, where I grew up, there were a lot of good public courses. Yeah. And they were very reasonably priced. Uh, meaning, you know, a working kid could afford a green fee. And, you know, used clubs were available. Used clubs are still available, by the yep. way. You they know, are. if you want to talk about the impediments to golf and it's an expensive sport, it can be uh, that the equipment's expensive, it can be, but and it's a very big but you can go into but not a B-U-T-T big, but B-U-T. It's a big, but uh, a big exception is what I'm trying to say, Larry, <laughs> that you can go on eBay, go to yard sales. You, you know, there are cheap clubs available for a kid who wants to get started. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and there are driving ranges, you know, lots and lots of thousands of driving ranges in this country where you can get the idea of what it's like to, you know, not trying to sell a book here, try to get that ball in the air. <laughs> but, 
Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. maybe I am maybe possibly trying to sell a book here. <laughs> well, we're going to definitely get to both. We're going to get yeah, to the last two, both, both of them, which were both fantastic, not surprisingly. Uh, but just to, so you went on uh, to Penn, which is, you know, as we were chatting about a little bit offline, which is where we have a few mutual friends and my wife Miriam went. Um, and um, I, I chuckled your Penn golf experience, team experience, kind of walked in with a lot of, Penn has a pretty good golf team, uh, and always has. Um, and um, you sort of sounded like, yeah, I don't think that's where I'm going to spend my time. Yeah, I, I could tell. I could, sometimes I feel like if I'm in a parking lot, I can tell if the guy is a single digit handicap, literally by the way he carries his bag to the first day. Right, right. Uh, you just develop that knack. Uh, I might be able to fake it at this point, like I look better than I am, but I know. But I feel like I do know, but anyway, looking at these kids and just knowing the courses really played, you know, as you, you were saying, the you know, the Harvard team, when, when you were an undergraduate, played at the country right. club. Yeah. You know, if you could shoot 80 at a hard private club course, it's not like shooting 85 on your public course. Not at all. I've been wasting their time by even showing up. So, yeah. Uh, but I did play the – I played uh, public courses in Philadelphia uh, – you played Cobb's Creek, right? Wasn't one I of the Cobb's Creek. I'm not saying yeah. this with any pride whatsoever. That's where Trump took up golf. Uh, I'm not using any honor. Really? Uh, that there's a nugget. I didn't know that. Yeah, he went to Fordham for two years and Penn for two years, and uh, uh, he was not from a golfing family. And he and he right. played at um, Cobb's Creek. He's is where. Let me rephrase, Larry. He says that's where he played his first golf. <laughs> no reason to doubt him, but we have reason to doubt him. Uh, uh, you We're have so now you have so many wonderful pieces, including and I can't remember at this point. It must have been at the Barber Collective, maybe it was golf.com. Some of the pieces you've written on him and golf are just or gems. But anyway, just to continue on the just the, the pen stuff. So n- not so much golf team, but majored in English. Um, I, I was interested cause I have vivid memories. I was an applied math major, so, uh, not nearly, uh, the writing writer that you are, uh, or even what were then, your, what but your major learn? applied math. Oh, interesting. Very what different. Math, what was your math SAT score? Um, I, you know, I think it was like 780. I think I got 800 on the achievement, but like 780 on the SAT, if I remember right, it's a long time ago. You know what we call that in the Bamberger house? What? Smart. smart. <laughs> but anyways, um, I, I do remember, I, I think I saw, I, I, I chuckled. I think you must have put this when you were talking about it in the ball in the air. It must be where I saw it, that you would read um, old volumes of The New Yorker and, you know, including, you know, of course, the great Herbert Warren Wind. Um, and, in, and I do remember the way he used to write those major articles, you know, they, of course, being the New Yorker, they were huge, um, but he would write about each major. They were gems, right, to read? They really were. Uh, for the listeners who don't know the name, if, if you're a baseball fan and you read the New Yorker, you'll know the name Roger Angel, A-N-G-E-L-L. And um, the, the, the New Yorker had a horse racing writer and a boxing writer, of almost equal renown and a golf writer of almost equal renown and the golf writer's name. And he wrote other sports as well was Herb Wind. He actually was from Brockton, Mass. Herb Warren Wind 
And uh, yes, I started reading him while I was in college. And what Wynn did was open the door to me to the idea that, uh, that you could write about a game in a serious way, in an entertaining, engaging, interesting way, not like a, although I was going to say not in an academic way, although there was something slightly academic about the way you wrote about it, because as you were noting, Larry, he would go to say, you know, in a British Open at the old course, and then he'd tell you about the 600-year history right. of the old course, or who old Tom Morris was. So for a kid like me, Larry, you were probably the same. Yeah. You can't get enough golf. Yeah, totally. And that means the history, the engineering behind the clubs, the history of golf course architecture, the social hierarchy of clubs and club membership practices and who gets in and who doesn't and who qualifies, you know, just so many different things uh, that come into it. Um, but Herb opened and I got to know Herb later. And, uh, oh, wow. Okay. That because I realized that, you know, I'm 63. I'm one of the last who really knew Herb. I knew Herb quite well, but I've got colleagues who are just a few years younger than I, and they don't know, they never, they read, know Herb and they read Herb, but they don't, they never no. knew him on a personal right. level. I've got a stack of letters, not that thick, but that thick, uh, from Herb. Oh, cool. That is awesome. Um, so you go on to there. I know you went to the Vineyard Gazette and then Philadelphia Inquirer, but I'm interested it, at this point, it sounds like you took a bit of a break to go caddy. Um, and, um, I saw if I'm remembering right, you'd caddied in three of the majors in 1985, you went to Europe. I, I and, and I saw the name Peter Teravainen, who, you know, rings a bell to me, of course, because Yale, I grew up in central Connecticut. He was a dominant New England amateur golfer at, uh, around our age. And what, what, um, what, what, what was your high school class? What were your, what were your graduate high school? I graduated high school in 79. Yeah. So in your, in your West Hartford years, if you were reading the, uh, uh, the New Haven paper, or what you would have in the Hartford Current, but they would have covered Yale golf. Oh, absolutely. You, you, you would have seen Peter's name from time to absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Peter Teravain, this guy that you're speaking of, he is the Michael Jordan of Yale golf. Right. That's that that is true. Now, having said that, Herb <laughs> Wynn, on the literary side, he went to Yale too, and he did play golf at Yale. But Peter was the best golfer that uh, Yale ever had. He couldn't make it on the PGA Tour. He had a lot of game, actually. Uh, he drove it long and play, um, but he was not a gifted putter. And he went to Europe. And uh, my wife Christine and I, we were newlyweds, and I, uh, I had been a reporter in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I took a leave from that for a year and uh, caddied for Peter. My wife accompanied me, my newlywed wife. And um, so we traipsed all over Europe. Uh, uh, you know, I think I'm jumping ahead here a little bit because the first thing you're asking about was 1985. That's when I caddied on the, on the U.S. tour. And I wrote a book about that called The Green Road Home. Right, which right. Is how I, that is how I met Herb Wynn because I sent that book to Herb and he very kindly uh blurb for it uh oh nice yes that was very just to show you how the world has changed i was a 25 year old kid 26 when the book came out larry these names will be meaningful to you but they sadly won't be meaningful to many people who might be listening uh but these are the people blurb for me herb wind we've discussed him george plimpton now i know you know oh, george yeah of course plimpton. yeah uh but for those who don't know george plimpton was the Tall, slender, erudite, uh, Harvard-educated, literary 
person uh, was the editor of what is that magazine? The Paris, the Paris, um, the Paris yeah. Review. Right. And uh, and his thing was to do this uh, series for one of his things was to do a series of participatory uh, journalism pieces for Sports Illustrated, where he would try to play as the backup quarterback for the Detroit Lions. Right. That's right, and, exactly uh, right. Called the Paperman. So when I caddied on the on the Pro Tour, I, I was there on a tourist visa. I was not a bona fide, genuine caddy. I kind of semi, maybe, possibly became half of one, but definitely not a legit one. Uh, but anyway, so but but I sent the book to Plimpton. He seemed to take a liking to it. He blurred for Herb Wind blue, pardon me, blurred for it. Um, uh, Scotty Reston, who was an editor of the, oh yeah, was a columnist and and previously an editor of the New York Times. Right. So it was you know, in other words, there were I'm dating myself and you too, Larry, for that matter. But when we were young people, there were really literary lines. There were lines absolutely. Of- and it's different now because the voices, there are many, many, it's more de- democratic than it's ever been. The 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 information superhighway is vastly wide. Right. Um, so it's harder to become a name like a Dan, in just to limit it to golf for, for a minute, like a Dan Jenkins did or Rick Riley's contemporary of mine uh, and a terrific writer. Uh, and, uh, oh, and it was Herb Wind. Red Smith uh, out in Los Angeles. Of course, Jim Murray, you would have read him. Yeah, three yeah. Um, so uh, amid this democracy, this, you know, super wide highway of, of information, it's harder to sort of separate yourself uh, uh, from the crowd. But anyway, uh, so that, that, yes, that's the first book uh, that I wrote is the one that you're referring to. I was a reporter on the, no, I wasn't. I was between the Vineyard Gazette and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then after some years at the Inquirer, uh, I wrote a sort of sequel, and that book is called To the Lynx Land, and that's where Peter Cherubainen comes in. He he was playing on Europe, and I caddied for Peter, and Christine and I traveled around Europe. People ask this sometimes, they say, how did you get your newlywed wife? <laughs> I, that I thought went through my head when I was reading about this. <laughs> well, it's a very understandable question, but those people don't know Christine, because she was like, the reason we're in Cambridge this weekend, and Bonnie Raitt's old house is because she saw a pet sitting opportunity and wanted it. Uh, she wanted to be on that, you know, that all night, we took an all night caddy bus from um, oh, somewhere in the south of France and, uh, to, to uh, Port of Portugal. Uh, so, you know, 40 or 50 caddies, one caddy wife, my wife in Tara Vainen, who was pathologically frugal, um, but she, <laughs> she had that kind of exploring mentality then and still does all these years later so uh um we had just had a great time and you know it's just a slender little book but what i pick up from that book is the wonder people have of like oh i wish i could do that i wish i could just drop out become a caddy and explore live a golfing life like for instance just to jump way ahead here yeah but michael block who was the low pro yes yeah we're gonna get to him for sure but yes yeah, absolutely yes and well not to, to take you out of your rhythm here no, that's but just, okay just to finish that one thought for a second yeah, please the thing about this michael block is of course he played great golf and there's something dynamic about his look and he looks sort of like a pirate 
But what he says is like, he just wants to be around golf every right. day of his life. Right. He right. says that. I mean, he said, absolutely. Right. You know, I want a driving range, caddy, parking lot guy, kitchen guy, whatever. I just, on the lesson team, playing tournament golf, giving lessons, playing with friends, playing with my sons. I just want to be around golf. And I think that's what that book, too, The Links Land, did. It gave people an opportunity to sort of imagine through Christine and me what it would be like just to be around golf full time, all the time. And it sounds like, Larry, since you're uh, uh, leaving uh, the law firm or retiring from the law firm, yeah. if that's the right phrase, that you're yeah. having more of an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Uh, what do you call it? Rating of courses. Yeah. Yourself and reading about golf, doing this. Exactly. Podcast. People love this game on a really, really deep level. It, and I'll just finish with one thought. Yeah. It comes from Michael Murphy. Now, Murphy sort of says that I came up with it, but I really think Murphy came up with it. Who knew that golf is yoga for Republicans? <laughs> I saw that line. Yeah, no, that's, that, that is awesome. That is awesome. Um, so... Um, you do the caddying thing, um, but you were, I mean, it sounds like that was, you were never thinking that was going to be uh, a career. I mean, you kind of did it as sort of an exploratory thing and you wrote a book about it and you, I mean, you were always, you, you always had your love still do about being a, you know, writer and newspaper guy. So you were always going to come back and you end up, um, you mentioned Jenkins and um, God, I mean, the litany, Curry, Kirkpatrick, we could go down the list of all the the giants at Sports Illustrated, and you were there for a long time. Um, yeah, and uh, that must have been a great experience. And, and you know, and it's interesting, and I just want to throw this one other thing on the table and get your reaction because, and you touched on it two minutes ago, it's so different now. I started subscribing to Sports Illustrated when I was 10 years old. Um, and uh, I still remember um, Yvonne Gulagong, the tennis, I think she was at the, on the cover of the first issue I got. And huh. I used to just, I mean, you know, all of the just tremendous writers and everything. It was just great stuff. And it's so different now. I mean, it's gotten, of course, Time Life, you know, chopped up all the magazines. They've gone in all different directions. But you kind of were there for that whole route from the zenith to sort of then with the Internet and everything, the changing landscape, right? Yeah. yeah. I got hired uh, by uh, the longtime editor there, Mark Mulvoy. Uh, yeah. in 1995 and I always thought of myself as a newspaper guy I was very happy being a newspaper reporter it's all I ever wanted to be and then Mo, and then Mova basically said well we're going to double your salary and half your workload it's like <laughs> what that's pretty much what Sports Illustrated did in those days and Larry what you said is very insightful if you go to the Wikipedia page for those who don't know Time Inc was a collection of magazines. Time Inc. was founded or co-founded by a man named Henry Luce. Right. And, and of course, it's Time, it's Fortune, People, Sports Illustrated. Those have been the four best-known titles, but there were many others as well. It's an iconic American brand. So yeah. if you look up the Wikipedia page for this iconic American brand that produced quality journalism on a weekly basis, Life, I left out. The, the the magazines were edited and, and created in a building in Midtown that would be worth billions of dollars. Say it, the building itself was called the Time Life Time Life Building on Sixth Avenue, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and if you look up look on the Wikipedia page under Time Inc., the first three words are Time Inc. was right. Like you just can't believe 
that this thing, Larry, that you, you know, Yvonne Gulligan showing up in your, you know, mailbox and then right. in your bedroom and you're studying the pictures of her yeah. and you're reading about her and how did this woman come from this, you know, backwater of Australia to exactly. the right. court of Wimbledon, and, you know, just the wonder of it all. And wonder is in short supply now because we know everything about everything. Right, right. Or we think we do. We think so we do, right. <laughs> what you're describing is a very different, I would say, much more romantic time, much more mystery. Uh, in our heroes, we were much more comfortable saying that we had heroes. Right. And uh, you and I are roughly the same age. And we grew yeah. up with that and reading about uh, those people doing these heroic things was a great joy. And uh, so for me, and maybe Larry for you as well, growing up on the on, on Nicholas as an icon of greatness, sportsmanship, right, perfect hair, beautiful family. Right. Like if you you know if you could save up and buy a McGregor golf ball. Right. That big jack had, oh my goodness. You know, right. This could take a stroke off my front line score and I better not lose it. So, yes, I mean, everyone thinks they grow up in a more innocent time, but generally speaking, it's true. It was wonderful. Um, Frank DeFord, I'm just thinking of all the names. There are so many. I mean, uh, Mr. Purple, right? He always loved Purple. I mean, he uh, just, just great, great writers. So, you were there for a long time, but you're, I, I want to sort of get, and, and of course now you're the fire pit collective with your buddy, Alan Shipnuck, another gifted writer. And, um, and we still get the chance to read you frequently, but I want to touch on some of your more recent books. So before we get to the ball in the air, um, I, I will, I got to confess something to you. So um, I bought your second life of Tiger Woods and it had been sitting on the shelf for a long time. Um, and I hadn't read it. Um, I read Armin Katayan's book on Tiger, read a lot of the stuff. And um, I'm one of these guys, to be perfectly candid. I mean, I view Tiger like Mozart. I mean, he's so gifted. But I was never really uh, a big fan of him. Personally, I had enormous respect for his golf game. Um, and um, but I just I don't know. He just reading through the books about him and, um, uh, you know, I'm sure Hank Haney had his axe to grind. But, you know, just working through the various books, it just it didn't really um, didn't really appeal to me. Although, again, I immense respect for, you know, someone who's clearly on the Mount Rushmore of golfers in terms of talent. And um, knowing you and I were going to talk, besides reading the ball in the air, I, I finally, you know, uh, got off my rear end and read uh, the, your your Tiger book. Because what's been so interesting to me, and you do a beautiful job touching on this at times in the book, is whether it's this, you know, the the May two thousand seventeen incident, whether it's the kids, his kids getting to an age both things. I don't know what it is. I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, he seems more vulnerable and more, I don't know, patient, more open relative to what he was all those years in his prime. And it's sort of very appealing um, relative for me to what he was. Um, but you, you know, studied him closely. Obviously, you followed him you know, throughout your whole career. And um, I'm curious kind of how you see this 
I don't know if it's Tiger 2.0 or what number we're version we're up to, but this latest version of Tiger and how you compare and contrast him to, you know, the Tiger we knew, you know, in his prime. Yeah. You know, you, you've been talking about SI and, and some of the great writers we had there. And, and one name that I know you know is Gary Smith. Yeah. Who wrote these deeply penetrating profiles. And when Tiger was first emerging on the scene in the late 1990s, I think he probably would have written this piece in 97. He talked about Tiger's emergence in the framework of a machine, that he was that he was coming out of machine and that he would be a, a piece of the machinery himself of Nike golf, of selling the PJ Tour, of selling his own greatness. And it's an incredible piece of journalism uh, because it's so prescient. Tiger's greatness was announced, as you say, as Mozart-like gifts for golf were announced at such a young age that it seems fairly obvious that other parts of his personality yeah, I know, right. did not that? develop appropriately. Right. right. So he has spent the rest of his life trying to catch up for, uh, in, in those areas, and it's very difficult. And... I don't think, Larry, we really have the time right here and now to go too, too deep into the life and times of Tiger Woods, except to say the following. And this might speak to your resistance to even like seeing a book on your shelf and, and maybe you know, just not wanting to read. And I can certainly completely understand that. I don't think any of us can appreciate the pain and the difficulty of what it is to be Tiger Woods on an everyday basis. And it's not just merely a shy person who's famous, although that comes with a lot of pain itself. I think it's in part the pain of being a super expert in one very, very narrow area that you get tremendous adulation for and some satisfaction or maybe great satisfaction for, but it's not repeatable or sustainable. Um, so like, even if you compare them to Ali or Michael Jordan or Secretariat, um, Ali had a large in life personality, welcomed people coming into his life. Jordan has teammates, he had golf, he had for good or for bad gambling. He had, you know, uh, a large family close, well, Tiger had a closeness with his parents as well, but sort of a big broad life, wasn't afraid of being a public figure. Tiger didn't like being a public figure. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Larry, is that it's almost impossible for us to imagine the struggles of what it's like. And I, I mean, my starting point of writing about anybody is to try to imagine what it's like to be that person. When I think about Tiger Woods, I don't think about, of course, my starting point is, you know, very possibly the greatest golfer, one of the greatest athletes of all time. That's got to be the starting point because that's why we know the name Tiger Woods. But then what are the costs of that? And I think they're unimaginable, actually. So if you think about the DWI incident that you made reference to in 2017, driving over the hydrant in the middle of the night, whatever you're just blanking on the yeah. year now. 2009, yeah. And then most tragically, really, driving off the side of the road yeah. inexplicably uh, in Los Angeles County. I don't think it was the city, but you know where it was better than Yeah, I. Well, it was down in PV, right, yeah. Um, 
what would cause these things? What would what what really are the costs of being Tiger Woods? So, uh, uh, like the difference between Tiger Woods and Ernie Els or Vijay Singh or Davis Love or even Phil Mickelson, there it's he's only a little tiny bit better in all these other categories. Now, when you added up that little tiny bit better in all these different categories, putting, driving, thinking, discipline, practice, fitness, then it explodes into a 12 shot win at the masters, 15 shot win at the U S open. I think a seven or eight shot win at one British open things that people thought were possible, but it's just a little tiny bit better and then there's the alchemy of what it blows up into. And it seems to have been almost more than any one person could stand. That's all well said. I, uh, and, and makes sense. Um, but it is, he does seem, and you touch on this in the book, I mean, more comfortable at this point in his life. Maybe he's catching up a little bit, as you would say, you know, in terms of uh, how he interacts with people. There's a, there's a, there's a, a warmth or maybe I should say a lack of the distance that used to that you used to feel at least I mean I obviously I'm not with him personally but just my sense of through TV and everything he seems a little bit um uh more open Larry that's true but here's a big except except for the fact we actually never see him we see him in a master's press conference and then he's gone and he's you gone that's true you might not Arnold, you could see Arnold every day of the week at, at Bay Hill Club, but we never see Tiger. We have, but to your point, like let, let me think of the year here. I think it would have been 2021 when he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Yeah, you talk about that. That speech sounded unbelievable. It, it was incredible. And anybody can call it up on the internet. He spoke without notes, uh, from the heart about his mom and his dad and his kids hunting for golf balls as a kid. Uh, playing uh, courses in in Southern California, the right. uh, the Navy course uh, uh, near his home, and yes, he show he he shows a deep appreciation for where his life started and where and where it took him. And yes, I would say he shows a warmth and a comfort uh, that that you didn't o- o- often see from him, certainly uh, uh, in his prime. Yeah. Uh, anyways, terrific book, and and then just to sort of touch on the the last one, which I'm so interested in, and kind of how you thought of what caused this book. You know, you talked about the caddy books. That was your caddy experience. Tiger, you know, natural topic, particularly after he wins the 2019 Masters. This is such an interesting book, The Ball in the Air, because you sort of take three different characters. Um, None of them are pro golfers, which is part of its appeal. Um, you know, this young woman grew up in Nepal, um, this older fellow who has lived just a remarkable life, Sam Reeves. Um, you know, I, I think I follow golf pretty closely. I will confess, I didn't know either of them. Oh, um, Ryan, Ryan French, I know the name from the Monday you know, well, and, and in fact, you know, just in the last day, we've had a little kerfuffle out here with Hillcrest Country Club. And he nailed that, you know, perfectly. And, um, and I know he's with you folks, but of course, I didn't know the whole backstory. Um, and so you weave the story that such great reading, so much fun to read. But I'm really curious. So what, how did you sort of come up with, gee, this is the next book I'm going to write. I'm, I'm just so interested in that. Uh, have you written any books yourself, Larry? Oh, gosh, no, I don't have the talent. <laughs> you might surprise yourself. Uh, uh, 
in this particular case, I've, I've had a longtime editor, terrific, wonderful person and editor both. His name is Jofi Ferrari Adler. For anybody who has the book, if you see the dedication page, the book is dedicated to Jofi. And Jofi's been my editor for a number of years now, and several books. Uh, he's read me for a long time before he was my editor. And um, he had the idea that with the rise of Live Golf, um, and I, I know you know all about Live Golf, Larry, but for those on the chance you don't, Live Golf's a competing tour to the PJ Tour. Uh, it's, it has a different structure. It's drawn some of the biggest names from golf. Stewart's tour, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Sergio, Garcia, Sergio Garcia, Patrick Reed, and others uh, to this international tour that's uh, that's backed by uh, uh, the Saudi uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund called PIF. Um, and it's caused tremendous disharmony in professional golf on all levels. Yep. And Jovi had the idea, Bleh, who it's getting to be too much every right. day. If you're reading about golf, it's money, 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 money. Right. Exactly. And it's tiresome. He said, wouldn't this be a great time to celebrate the amateur game, the game that you and I play, Larry and Jofi plays and literally tens of millions of people across the world play. Um, and that was the idea. That was Jofi's idea. And he didn't say anything more than that. And that's what makes him a great editor. Uh, Take this idea and, and run with it as you see fit. Um, now, you grew up in Connecticut. You might know this name. Many people would know this name. Thornton Wilder was a, yeah. was a great American playwright. Yeah. His most famous work is Our Town. Our Town yeah. is a celebration of life in three acts, beginning, middle, and, and let's say the third act of life. And we often hear this phrase that golf is a game of a lifetime. It truly is. You and I are examples of that, Larry. Yeah. We started young. I started youngish. We played young. We played middle. And here we are, you know, let's say 60 plus, And we hope to keep playing right on through. We would Right. Absolutely. So, so the idea became, could I find three different characters in the book sense, though they happen to be characters in, you know, the colloquial sense as well, <laughs> who represent different stages of golfing lives. So, uh, so you've already given us the names. Proctima Sherpa, or the, the profile is Proctima Sherpa, is a young woman who grew up in abject poverty in a maintenance shed in Kathmandu, Nepal, through an odd circumstance, found herself down the street from you, Larry, at Cal yeah. State LA. Yeah. She just graduated uh, from it uh, just within the past week or so. She's in her early 20s, so she represents Act One. Uh, my friend and colleague, Ryan French, better known as the Monday Q guy who uh, faced a true midlife crisis that's described in the book, found his way to a much healthier life, as many do through golf, and then developed out of whole cloth this thing that you would never imagine could be a beat and a livelihood. Who qualifies for tournaments and how do they do it? Monday right. Q. But he has... And then an older friend, Sam Reeves, um, 88 years old now, uh, truly a wise gent who has seen a lot in his business life. He's seen a lot in the, he grew up in the, in the Jim Crow South. He has seen right. American society change remarkably from his childhood in the thirties to where we are today. And a, uh, 
a totally devoted golfer. And sort of like if you just heard the profile of Sam Reeves, like I just gave it to you very briefly, you might have some idea of who the person is. But then as you read about him or if you got to know him, or if you do know him, you see someone who is so deep and thoughtful and spiritual and soulful. Uh, it's remarkable, really, uh, the depth of the man and how sharp and insightful he is at any age. He happens to be 88. Right. Uh, so three very different people. And as you kindly said, Larry, yes, try to weave their stories uh, uh, back and forth uh, through the book. It's just wonderful. Um, it's really a great book. And and they're all sort of, you, you paint such vivid portraits of all of them and you describe them all really well. And I just would just echo, I mean, um, you know, as I said, wouldn't have known any of these other than Ryan. I know the name, but, you know, wouldn't have known any of their story, but for your book, but um, spiritual is a good word for Sam Reeves. I mean, just reading about him and, and just, he just sounds like a remarkable fellow. Um, they're all remarkable in their own way, but I mean, spiritual was the word that kept coming back to me as I was reading your description of him really sounds neat. Um, but, but uh, it was great, but let me sort of, bring us up to the present a little bit. Um, and um, you mentioned Liv, um, and that has been the topic at the pro level, um, you know, uh, kind of ad nauseum to some extent, as you were suggesting, but it's sort of back in focus um, with Brooks's win. Um, and of course, you know, he was, you know, second and leading at the masters because um it has been really disruptive um and um and and you know you and alan so many people have written about it we don't need to sort of go through all that but i'm just sort of curious as we sit here today after oak hill um and not just brooks bryson was very competitive and um you know it's it's got a number of people who <clears throat> from my standpoint sad it happened just because we all want to see these people compete together you want to see Scotty Scheffler and Brooks Kepka in the same tournaments. And now we kind of are only going to see them four times a year. But, you know, the thing I'm curious your take on is that um, everyone sort of said, and I probably was in this chorus, that, gee, if you're going to play 54 hole, no cut of uh, things, 48 players, no real chance. There's not really the relegation or chance for people advance, you know, very, very fundamental differences. And, Whatever you think of that, how is that going to prepare you competitively to be sharp when you go and tee it up four times a year at these majors? Because that was going to the Masters. I that was, I mean, you know, people want to choose to do that, choose to do that, and and you know, and I mean, Brooks Koepka is still Brooks Koepka, Cam Smith, U.S. British Open champion. They're they're still great golfers, but I always had the view that you have to be competitively sharp to be really at the zenith of the game for the major and they're playing these 54 hole tournaments on pretty nondescript courses. And it's not like they're lighting it up. It's not like Brooks won five of them or something. And yet he tees it up and, you know, and Bryce and the rest of them. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Cause I don't know if you had the same reaction. I was just surprised that they were so competitively sharp at these first two majors. Well, yes. The, the short answer is I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Let's bear in mind we have a very small sample pool. That's uh, true. At Augusta, 
Brooks Kepka, the guy who won the PHA championship, woke up on the Sunday morning of the Masters. They had to play more than 18 holes. I don't remember the exact number. I think on the order of 30 maybe holes, Brooks Kepka. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, That's right. The- yeah, yeah. They were on the seventh green when they called it Saturday. So whatever okay. that adds up to. Right. 10, yeah. uh, 11 and a half holes plus 18. So pretty, let's right. call it okay. 30. So <laughs> right, right around 30 holes. Um, and, you know, you could say a lot of different things. But you could say he blew it. It was his tournament to win. You could say John Rahm just played better and he played poorly. So maybe he wasn't, maybe he wasn't sharp enough. Uh, what Mickelson did was extraordinary. Extraordinary, yeah. But he was never really in the tournament. He, That's he right. He crazy at the end and, you know, found himself in second place. It's different. I'm not taking a thing away from it, but it is different from what we're talking about. Um. But uh, I would have thought the same thing. Can you really be competitively sharp playing these? I would definitely feel comfortable saying, you know, there it's competitive golf, but it's also glorified exhibition, as you say. Right. There's no right. guaranteed money. Just a totally different atmosphere. Not nearly as many spectators. Not that intense scrutiny of of a CBS camera in your face. It's right. different. It just, I don't, the history of Tiger Woods and Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, that that are part of every PJ Tour. Right. Of course, you're not going to have that because it's a new league. So it is different. So in that context, yes, I would be right down the same road with you or that you would not have thought it was likely that a live player would step up there, especially, let's say, like one who's been sort of out of it for a while, um, out of the competitive heat for a while. Sergio Garcia, Patrick Reed, even Dustin Johnson, to a degree. So in that sense, yes, I would agree with you. It was surprising. However, and it's a big however, this Brooks Koepka is a mega, mega, mega talent who hasn't been healthy for a while. You take a mega talent who's healthy, and they're just good at golf. They just are good at golf. And especially the way this guy plays, he's like, I'm good at golf. You right. can't stop me from being good at golf. Right. You can talk about Byron Nelson all you want. It's meaningless to me. I'm good at golf. So you give me the opportunity to show me how, how good I am. I'm going to show you. And he did. Uh, and uh, now if you're not a fan of live golf, and if you feel like it's been a really uh, divisive thing in the game, uh, you might not be happy about the win, but you can't deny Brooks Kepka's greatness as a golfer the guy's got five major championships one more than Rory McIlroy well and it makes you think right I mean you touched on his his knees his injuries I mean you know 2017 to 19 I mean the one the tournament that opened my eyes to him more than any other um was of course I know you know well not far from a little 30 40 miles from you grew up was the U.S. Open at Shinnecock when he was sort of coming down at back nine with Dustin Johnson and I don't know if it was 14 or 15 where he hit it offline. He had a chip out and he pitched, he like wedged, got up and down for like a hundred yards. I mean, he was just nails. I mean, he was just, he just, and Dustin was the one who ultimately faded. I mean, he was just, it was mano a mano and he just hit it. And I mean, it was like, it was impressive stuff. And it makes you wonder, boy, if his knee hadn't sort of, you know, had those issues, you know, what would we be looking at now? Maybe more than five. <laughs> that could that could very well be. Uh, but it is still golf. And he's had, uh, you know, he's blown tournaments too. And yeah. uh, 
He did, you know, at Beth Page Black, I don't recall what the number was, but he had a big... Uh, the yeah, he let it all wilt away, right. He had a big lead, right. that's right. Right. He held on to win. He was never going to lose that tournament. But it shouldn't have been as tense as it was uh, uh, at the end. Um, the 2019 Masters that you, you know, of course, that Tiger won, besides putting in right. the water on 12, I mean, he had those two putts coming. I don't think he even hit the hole on either one. I mean, he could have right. easily done that. Right, right. If he would have had a big time back nine, he would have won that thing by three. Right. Uh, and he just didn't. So uh, that's the nature of golf. And that's the greatness of golf. Nicholas, you know, there's never going to be a golf conversation like the one we're having where the name Nick Jack Nicholas is not going to come up a dozen times. You could say, oh, Michael, let's, let's have a podcast. Let's talk about Tiger Woods for 45 minutes. Okay, great, Larry. Love to do it. <laughs> his name will come up 13 to 18 times. Yeah, I know. I know. So, Nicholas himself, everybody knows this. Not everybody knows this, or I wouldn't be mentioning it. But most people know he's got 18 major professional wins, 20 if you count his U.S. Hammers. But let's just say 18. He's got 19, 19 up finishes. I know. So it's hard to close in golf. It's not like tennis, where the better guy wins 98% of the time. It just doesn't right. happen in golf because golf's funky. The playing field is a weird one. Odd things happen. Moods affect you insecurity settles in at the least opportune times it's just it, that's why we love the game it's not predictable and the other day totally i had a nine hole match and i played well for nine holes i'm like oh my god who is this guy who actually <laughs> played well for nine holes it's a good thing it was a nine hole match because it was not sustainable what i did was not sustainable but it was fun while it lasted. oh I, I know the feeling um it's a, it, the game you know you're playing well you know you have a great front nine you get in the back then you start thinking at least i do boy you know i could actually have a pretty low score here and then things start creeping into your head it's 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 the best Hey, I'll get you out of here on this. I'm just sort of um, maybe we've been going back and looking backwards on things. Look forward for uh, a second. We sit here, you know, a year plus after Liv's launch and um, and look at the Pro Tour and this, you know. Personally, I'm not a fan of these no cut designated events. I don't mind the designated events. I, I hate to see the no cut stuff at the PGA Tour. But, um, you know, now we've kind of... I just, I just, I don't under, I got to tell you, but just two seconds on that. I don't understand. The Masters has a much smaller field. They seem to be able to have a cut. I don't understand why it couldn't be, you know, 90 down to 60 or whatever the numbers are at Augusta. I don't know why having a designated event means you need no cut. I mean, I guess I understand the logic, you know, they want sponsors, want you there for, want the stars there for four days, but I just hate to see it. I don't know how you, it sounds like you feel the same way. I totally agree. Um, but where do you think the, the pro game goes from here? I mean, we're going to be, we're ending the wraparound season, which I do think that's a good thing. Uh, but um, what do you, how do you sort of see it heading over the next few years? I think there's going to have to be some sort of peace treaty between Live Golf and the PGA Tour because war is not sustainable. It's probably less sustainable for the PGA Tour than it is for Live Golf because Ultimately, these PGA Tour events are backed by corporations that have to answer to boards and shareholders, uh, and they're not going to have the tolerance for what do you mean? What, what do you mean that you're going to spend 
35 million dollars on a purse for a golf tournament uh there's gonna so at some point somebody's gonna say no whereas for the saudis saudis don't have have that issue so i just don't think it's sustainable i think with with brooks kepka very likely playing his way onto a Ryder cup team you can't just say even if you might want to say uh you know oh they've walked away from the pga tour they're dead to us, like, you know, the line from The Godfather. Right, right. They're still just professional golfers. You know, right. yeah, they took the money and ran. It's kind of the world in which we live. You can have whatever feeling you might have about it. You can guess mine, Larry. I'm going to guess yours is probably pretty yeah. similar. Yeah. Um, but they haven't murdered anybody. You know, they just went for the money. A lot of people do in this world. Uh uh, so anyway, I think people are going to um, they're going to have to come up with some kind of method by which you can play that live tour and certainly still try to qualify and earn points that would give you the right to play in the four major championships. I don't think you're ever going to play in the players championship, you know, the the the, the, the flagship PGA Tour event. But I think there's going to be a detente between the tour because I just don't think it's sustainable otherwise. Oh, yeah, I agree. I, and the world ranking stuff, which is what you're sort of alluding to, which is the mechanism by which these guys get into these majors. I, I agree. Um, I just and I have a feeling if Brooks was never injured, I wonder if this would ever he ever would have went to live. But um, and there's you know, another factor, too. He got a job for his brother, although no one's ever. Right. Uh, that's also absolutely. Chase Kepka is, you know, just an obscure, uh, another obscure professional golfer. No one ever heard of. He has a job on the live. Right. In, in live golf, one might surmise. No one has flat out said this because uh, that they they signed up Chase first, but you can kind of read between. You can the kind of connect the dots, right? Exactly. Hey, dots. hey, Michael, this has been tremendous. I really appreciate it. I, I you, love bro. your work. Will you be at the LA. Will you be at the US Open? Absolutely. LA? I mean, so yeah. that's exciting for us. The first uh, open here in seventy five years and. LACC yeah. will be an issue. It's a, it's a big, I think you compared it at one point to the Augusta in terms of in one of your pieces about how, you know, how big the, the, you know, the area that's, I've been to the masters once and that was what struck me how huge it is. It's a huge wow. property. Yeah. It's wide. There's a lot of width to it. It'll be an interesting test for them. And um, I hope we'll, really, I will really see you there. Really odd for US Open because there's very few trees and it's a big wide yeah. place. I don't know what they're going to do for rough. You probably would do better than I, but uh but yeah, so with the only other U.S. Open was was at L.A. Has there no? So 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 the only other, um, at least oh, the last one was Riviera in '48, um, and and it's been. I mean, and you probably know this story. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the only one. I I think it's the only one. Yeah, I think um, so. I, in '48 at Riviera, right? You got it. Um, and 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 I know for years and years and years the USGA going back to David Fay was, you know, sort of dying to have LACC host it. And, um, you know, they finally have gotten, now they're kind of an anchor site almost. I mean, they've got a bunch of subsequent USGA, including, and I think it's 2039, the US Open's coming, the Ladies Open's coming before then. We've got the Ladies Open coming to Riviera in 2026, courses at Pebble this year. So California is getting its... Um, share of uh usga championships these days which is uh which will be fun but hopefully well, you, i will you, uh, you see know, you out there you know you know we say in the uh in the tv business larry not that you or i are in it you might be in it more than i <laughs> 9 p.m for you 6 p.m for us 
There is a lot to be said for that, but uh, we will keep enjoying you on the Fire Pit Collective, Thank and hopefully I will see you out here. I really appreciate Good. it. Thanks so much. Thanks.